Let me ask you a question. Start off with a question this morning. If you knew you only had 24 hours left to live, what would you do? Maybe you've thought about that. Maybe you've been presented with that thought experiment before. What would you do? Maybe you, you know, spend time with loved ones. Many people would probably say that. I'd want to spend all that time with my family, with people that I'm closest to. Maybe you might try to make amends with somebody. Maybe there's a broken relationship with somebody that you used to be close with, and you just try to make things right, you know, before you, you passed on. Maybe you'd get your will and your affairs in order, and you'd just try to make sure that your family was going to be taken care of after you were gone. You might take a, take a cue from Tim McGraw and go skydiving or Rocky Mountain climbing. Y'all remember that song? I'm from Texas, so sorry. <laughs> what probably didn't come into your mind was something like, well, I'd spend my last 24 hours washing the dishes and cleaning the house for my spouse. Or I'd spend my last day sitting with a sick friend and just comforting them. We don't typically think about spending our last moments focused on other people, do we? But that's exactly what Jesus did in John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. We're continuing through the book of John. We've been walking through it for the last several months, and we're at a significant turning point in the story this morning in John chapter 13. Uh, You can start turning there in your Bibles. I hope that you have your Bibles. If you don't, there are some on the pew backs in front of you. Uh, The words will be on the screen behind me, but it's always good to follow along with a physical copy of God's Word if you have it. So I'm going to read John 13, 1 to 17, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into the text. I'll give you another moment to, to turn there. John is in the New Testament. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you hit Acts, you've gone too far. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 13, starting in verse 1, here's what God's Word says. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing now you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for your word this morning. Jesus, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and that Lord, that every single person here in this room this morning would hear from you and that you would give them eyes to see just how glorious and good and loving and merciful you are. It just jumps out at us here in this text. What an astounding passage of scripture we just read. I could I could honestly just I could close the book and just go sit down right now. God, the the I'm just in awe at what we read. Lord, give us eyes to see. Help me to preach this morning. Help me to to rightly divide the word of truth. Help us, Lord, to to know how you want us to apply this passage to our lives. Lord, I just pray that that we would get a grasp of just how great your love is that's demonstrated in this passage. And I pray that you would help us follow in Jesus' example by washing the feet of one another. Lord, we love you. Um, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, as I said, John chapter 13 is a turning point in the book of John, and really it's a turning point in all of Scripture. Uh, This chapter begins to detail the final day of Jesus' life. And so the, the, the first 12 chapters of John cover a period of about three years, and the next seven chapters are going to cover a period of about 18 hours. Okay, so it's at this point that the camera lens sort of zooms in and the narrative pace is going to slow down drastically in John. And whenever that happens in a story or in a movie or in a book, what that tells you is that we're nearing the climax. Like this is a really important point in the story. And all of the events, the book of John, even all of Scripture is leading up to the events that are going to unfold over the next eight chapters, John 13 through 21. It would be helpful at this point to remind us of the theme of the book of John. Many of you who've been with us for a while going through the series will recall that John chapter 20, verse 31, John himself tells us the theme of the book. He says, I, These things I have written to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John, he puts all his cards out on the table And he wants to make sure you understand that the reason he has recorded all of these facts and these events in his gospel is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so those first 12 chapters of John, are they're classically called the book of signs because they detail signs that Jesus performed which point to his identity as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And uh, it kind of climaxes and the signs get greater and greater in their, uh, in their uh, I don't know, level of spectacularness, if that's a word. And it culminates in Lazarus being raised from the dead in John chapter 11. But as you heard from Doug last week, uh, wrapping up chapter 12, despite all of these clear signs, in John 12, 37, we read that they still did not believe in him. 
Despite all these signs, the, the result at the end of John chapter 12 is that the hearts of the people were hardened. They still didn't believe. In fact, as uh, the gravity of Jesus' signs increased, so did the hostility towards him. And so at this point in the story, the tension is building. And even the suspicion around Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples, was growing. And there's hints being dropped in throughout John chapter uh, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, that Judas is beginning to turn in his heart toward, uh, away from Jesus. Everything is heading towards the cross, which is the great climax of the big story. And what's really striking about the passage that we just read in John 13 is that Jesus knows it. We read in verse 1 that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Some of you who are astute readers may recall that we've, we were told numerous times leading up to this point that Jesus' hour had not yet come. You guys remember that? Several times it says that in the book of John, but now his hour is here and Jesus knows it. In fact, four times in this passage alone we are told that Jesus knew. Jesus knew that his hour had come in verse 1. In verse 3, it says that Jesus knew the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. In verse 11, it says that Jesus knew who it was who would betray him. Jesus knew that the blackest darkness awaited him over the next 18 hours. He knew he would be betrayed by one of his own. He knew he would be falsely accused. He knew that he would be whipped and beaten and mocked and spat upon and have nails driven through his hands and through his feet as he slowly suffocated naked on a cross. He knew the weight of the sin of the whole world would be placed on him and that the Father would turn away his face in disgust. He knew that the wrath of God towards the full weight of sin would be poured out upon him as he experienced a God-forsakenness that he had never known, having eternally existed with the Father from before all time. Jesus knew that all of this awaited. That's what he's about to enter into over the next 12 hours. So of all things... Why did he choose to get down on his hands and his knees and wash the feet of his disciples? What is the meaning of this? I think the meaning of this could be summed up, and this is really kind of the summary statement of this message this morning. I'd say it like this. Jesus took the posture of a lowly servant so that we could know and show his love. Jesus took the posture of a lowly servant so that we could know and show his love. There's two kind of uh, points, I think, that, that are behind the washing of his disciples' feet. Uh, and these will be the two points of the message this morning. The washing of the disciples' feet is an explanation of the cross, and it's an example for us to follow. Okay? It's an explanation of the cross and an example for us to follow. So those are going to be our two points. So let's talk about the first one. Jesus' selfless act of service is an explanation of the cross. So the night of Passover, before the disciples ate, Jesus, we're told here, filled a basin with water, he got a towel, and he began to wash his disciples' feet one by one with his bare hands. And so there were, there were 12 disciples, 
So this would have taken quite some time. This wasn't just like a quick thing. And um, we're not told what was said before he got to Peter. So you almost get the sense that they all just kind of sat around in stunned silence as they watched their Lord and Master take off his outer robes and, and put on a towel around his waist, which would have been the dress of a servant. It's what servants would wear. And they just sat there stunned. And then they watched him fill a, a, a basin with water, get a towel, get down on his hands and feet and just start washing their feet. And they're just going, jaws on the floor. What is happening right now? That's kind of the picture, the scene that we get. And there's a danger of us really missing the impact of what's happening because we live in a different culture. We don't wash each other's feet. We don't have servants that wash your feet when you come into somebody's home anymore. But washing feet was reserved only for non-Jewish servants. No self-respecting Jew would do it, let alone a teacher and a rabbi. People traveled all day in leather sandals in the dust, okay? So, like, people's feet were a lot dirtier. I don't know if you have ever smelled your feet or somebody else's feet after you've worn leather sandals all day in the hot sun, but it doesn't smell good, okay? Feet are stinky after you wear leather sandals. Uh, I don't even like it when my wife puts her clean feet on me, which she tries to do all the time. But Jesus watched the, <laughs> Jesus watched the dirty, sandy feet of his disciples that probably smelled really bad because he was you know, walking around in these leather sandals all day in the hot sun. The creator of the heavens and the earth became flesh so that he could, among other things, have hands to wash the dirty feet of sinful men. But he wasn't just washing feet just for the sake of washing feet. Okay, There is meaning behind this. The washing of the disciples' feet foreshadowed the cross. And there are numerous indicators here in this passage that, that tell us that. For, uh, for one, we already mentioned that in verse 1 it says, it kind of sets the tone for in the mood of the passage where it says his hour had come. So we know, okay, we're entering into the final hours before Jesus is going to go to the cross. Another thing that, that points us to the cross in this passage is that the text is peppered with reminders that Judas is going to betray Jesus. So in verse 2, in verse 11, and then later in the chapter in verses 18, and then verses 21 to 30, all keep reminding us that Judas is going to betray Jesus. So throughout this scene that's unfolding, it's like this ominous background music throughout this scene that, that all, okay, Jesus is doing this act of love, and in the background there's one of the twelve, one of the disciples, and Satan is, is kind of almost like building up this evil work in his heart that he's about to go and to carry out. And then in verses 7 to 8, Jesus explicitly makes the connection between washing the feet of his disciples and the even greater act of service that's going to take place on the cross. Look again, he says, he says to Peter, what I'm doing now you don't understand, but afterward you'll understand. And then he says in verse 8, Peter, sa Peter said to him in verse 8, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So clearly what Jesus is, is communicating here is that the washing of feet is a sign, it's a symbol pointing to uh, the washing away of sins that's going to come through his sacrificial death on the cross. He's giving a living illustration of Mark 10.45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is almost giving a word picture to the disciples. Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet was an explanation of the cross, and it was an exhibition of God's love. 
That's why John opens this scene in verse 1 with, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. The God who created and knows all the stars by name, who raises up and brings down princes and kings, who gives us each and every breath that we take on hands and knees washing the feet of sinners. Jesus was not just a man, okay? He's the, Scripture tells us he's the visible image of the invisible God. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The same God who thundered on Mount Sinai, who warned the people of Israel not to get too close to the mountain lest they die, put on a servant's robe, picked up a towel, and washed feet. He even washed Judas's feet knowing it was Judas who was about to betray him. Jesus took the posture of a lowly servant so that we could know and show his love. Let me ask you a question. How does this square with the way that you view God? It challenged Peter. Peter objected. He said, are you going to wash my feet? You will never wash my feet. Peter was shocked. In his view, it should be the other way around. He should be washing Jesus' feet, but here Jesus was washing his feet. Many people today still stumble over this notion that God would stoop so low as to become a man to wash feet and to die on the cross for sinners. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, says Paul. Muslims, for example, think it's blasphemy to suggest that God would become a man. They believe it's beneath God, that it belittles His holiness. They believe it's up to them to live up to God's standards and that by proverbially washing God's feet enough times, they can merit eternal life. They don't understand just how good and merciful and loving God truly is. It's not just Islam. There are many people who think that the way to be reconciled to God is by their own works. They underestimate the love of God. They think that what God wants of them is to, is to serve Him as a slave and as a servant and to perpetually wash His feet. And, and maybe they'll uh, eventually they'll do enough and they'll honor God enough and that He'll decide, okay, I'll accept you. But Jesus shows us here that it's the other way around. Jesus responded to Peter. He said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. The master must serve the servant. The teacher must serve his disciples. The righteous must die for the unrighteous. It's true that Jesus is the righteous one deserving of all the glory. It should be us washing his feet. So Peter was right in a sense. But we have failed to glorify God as he deserves. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God is perfectly holy and righteous. Psalm chapter 7 verse 11 says that God is angry with the wicked every day. So if you are not in Christ, you need to understand this morning that God is angry with you. You have not honored Him with your life. You've broken His commands and the wrath of God hangs over you right now. And yet God is also rich in mercy and steadfast in love. Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet is a parable of what must happen for guilty sinners like them and like us to be made clean. 
He must serve us by dying for our sin on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it like this. It says that he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. There's this exchange that must take place. Your sin is very serious and God truly is angry with you because of your sin. And yet God is loving and merciful So the only way for God's wrath towards sin to be satiated, the only way for God to forgive guilty sinners was for somebody else to step in your place and take the wrath you deserved. That's what Jesus came to do. He who knew no sin became sin. He, When He was on the cross, He took on all the sin, all of your sin. Your sin, was, if you've trusted in Christ, was nailed to the cross along with Jesus. It was finished forever so that you could receive the perfect righteousness of God as a free gift. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The master must serve the servant. The righteous must die for the unrighteous. That is what Jesus is showing us in John chapter 13. As the holy and righteous one, the creator of the universe, gets on his hands and his feet like a servant and washes our dirty feet and our sins away. That's the gospel. I want to urge you not to let your pride keep you from Jesus' gracious gift this morning. It's pride that keeps us from allowing others to serve us. Have you ever noticed how reluctant we can be to accept help? I think men are especially bad at this. We think it's more honorable or noble to do everything ourselves. But if you want to honor God, the greatest way to do that is to acknowledge your spiritual poverty and to allow Jesus to serve you. That magnifies His worthiness. It gives Him all the glory. It gives Him all the praise for our salvation. So don't spurn God's good gift of love. I also don't want to move on before making another note here, an important one, I believe. External washing is not enough. Did you notice that Judas' feet were washed? Jesus washed Judas' feet. But he said in verse 10 to the disciples, you are clean, but not every one of you. Going through the motions of religion, of Christianity, will not save you. Being baptized, praying a prayer, going to church, none of those things can cleanse you any more than Judas was cleansed by Jesus washing his feet that night. You must be washed from the inside out. Later on, after the service, we're going to be baptizing some four new believers. And this baptism is an outward picture of an inward reality that's happened in their hearts. It symbolizes that they've been cleansed from their sins through their faith in Jesus' death and resurrection on their behalf. It's an important step, and it's a step of obedience to Jesus. But what cleanses us and what saves us is when we repent of our sin and we fully place our faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Not trusting in our own works, not trusting in our own righteousness, not continuing to live life our own way, not continuing to be our own God. Have you been changed from the inside out? Are you walking in obedience to God? Are you living a life pleasing to Him? Has God changed you? That's what matters. Don't just depend on an outward external washing of your feet. Be sure this morning that you've been cleansed from the inside out. If you're not sure about that, 
come and talk to one of us after the service. Don't just put it off till later. Don't just assume. Don't just go, well, I'm probably okay. Why would you put your eternity at stake like that? Why would you roll the dice on your eternal destiny? Don't roll the dice. Make sure today. Come talk to me. Talk to Thomas. Talk to Chad. Talk to Doug. Come talk or talk with somebody who you came with. And be sure this morning that you know that you're born again. So the washing of the disciples' feet was an explanation of the cross. You guys see that, how the, the, wash, the, the feet washing kind of points us to the cross? So it was an explanation of the cross, but it was also an example for us to follow. After Jesus washed their feet in verses 12 to 17, Jesus did sort of a debrief with the disciples, and he explained to them what he had done. In the military, we call it an after-action review. That's kind of what happened here. Look at what he says in verses 13 to 15. He says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. There is no reason for any disciple of Jesus to ever think that any act of service is beneath us. I think that's the plain meaning of what Jesus just said here. Jesus, our teacher and our Lord, humbled himself to the greatest act of service. He says a servant is not greater than his master. That means that anyone who follows Jesus must serve in the same way that he has served us. Jesus' act of service in John 13 is not only a picture of how he serves us, but it's a model for Christian living. Okay? Jesus served others when they didn't deserve it. He served others even though he was enduring hardship. I mean, don't forget, this is the night of his betrayal. And in a matter of hours, he will be in such anguish that he will sweat drops of blood in Gethsemane. And yet he loved his disciples to the end. How easy is it for us to, you know, when we get, we're having a bad day, or we're in a bad mood, or we're going through a depression, we just get inward focused and we throw this self-pity party and we stop serving others. And yet Jesus doesn't do that here, does he? He continues to serve and focus outward, even as he knows he's about to endure the greatest pain imaginable. Jesus served others even though he was the one who deserved to be served. Right? How often are, you know, do we start thinking about like, well, I'm not getting what I deserve, and why aren't people giving me the recognition that's due to me? And Jesus could have easily said that, and he would have actually been righteous to say it. And yet, he doesn't focus on himself. He serves others. Jesus was, was willing to be dishonored, to suffer dishonor so that others could be honored. How counterintuitive is that to us? That's what we're called to do, and yet it's so against our nature, isn't it? What is it that keeps us from washing the feet of others? Have you thought about that? Why is that so hard? I think the answer is not too complicated. I think it's that we think too highly of ourselves. We put self in the place of God. We want to be served, and we think that others should cater to our needs. Have you ever noticed how we almost kind of walk around like life is this movie, and we see, life, we see the movie of life through the lens of us being the main character? Like, everything kind of revolves around us, and if the main character gets killed off, then what's the point of the show, right? Like, we have to continue on, but we're not the main character of the, of the show. God is the main character. We're all supporting actors and actresses. 
we're all supporting actors and actresses. God is the main character. <laughs> I, we have a God complex. We do. All of us do. That's the essence of sin. But this is where this passage comes in and messes up our self-centered little worlds. Jesus, who actually is God, did not come to be served, but to serve. So how on earth could I possibly walk around expecting others to cater to my needs like I'm a little God strutting around? Who am I to do that? Should I not follow Jesus in serving others? The only way that we will ever actually do this is when we've been finally and fully humbled by Jesus' loving kindness towards us. John put it like this in a later epistle that he wrote in John, uh, 1 John 4.19. He said, we love because he first loved us. It's understanding Jesus' gracious love towards us that melts our hard hearts to selflessly serve others. It is Jesus' love that shifts the focus off of me and empowers me to live like Jesus. Jesus took the posture of a lowly servant toward us so that we could know and show his love. That's the, that's the, the change he wants to bring about in your life this morning. He wants to take you from a self-centered walking around, everything centered around me, and he wants you, he wants to take you and he wants to fix your gaze on Jesus, kneeling before you on his hands and his feet, washing your feet so that you might repent of a life of self-serving and begin to serve others the way that he has served you. It's as you understand the way that he served you that you'll be set free to serve others. So let's get really practical before we close and talk about what this looks like just in day-to-day life. Let's think about, first of all, relationship between husbands and wives. Washing the feet, uh, and by the way, if you're single, you need to pay attention to this too because uh, most likely you're going to be married someday and so uh, you, shouldn't start, you shouldn't start living like a good husband and a wife. Once you get married, you should start living like one right now. Because guess what? On the day you get married, you're not going to magically change into a good husband or wife. Like it doesn't, like nothing actually happens. If you're, if, you're, if you're a crappy husband the day before you get married, you're going to be a crappy husband after you get married. It's just the bottom line, okay? So here we go. <laughs> Washing the feet of your spouse will probably mean doing things you don't like to do around the house. Husbands, maybe that means taking care of the children even though you just came home from a long day of work. Yes, you're tired and it's easy to focus on your own fatigue, but selfless love asks, well, what about my wife? Is she tired? Has, he, has she had a long day today? Sin makes us selfishly want to focus on our own needs. Wives, for you, maybe this means graciously overlooking the fact that your husband forgot to take out the trash or wash the dishes. You may be tired or stressed, but selfless love will consider the fatigue and stress of your husband as well. There may be a time to bring it up, but it can be brought up in a non-accusatory and gentle way as well. You know, we get so easily offended when we think our spouse isn't taking our needs into consideration, don't we? But love overlooks offenses. Selfless love considers others first. Just imagine a marriage where both parties operated like this all the time. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? 
I think that's what we're called to work towards. We're in, we, we do it imperfectly, but um, my prayer is that John 13 will help us maybe take some next steps in our marriages here in the church towards doing that this week. Now, maybe you might say, yeah, but Jared, what if my spouse isn't reciprocating? I've been trying to selflessly serve my spouse, and, and it, it just does, they don't seem to care. They're not serving me back. I'll say this. First of all, uh, Jesus did not serve us uh, for what he could get in return from us, number one. And number two, I promise you that if you love your spouse like this consistently without respecting anything in return, it will make a difference. Scripture tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. And selfless love like this has a way of softening a hard heart over time. But it may take time. But the love of Jesus through you can melt the hard heart of your spouse. So the next time you're struggling to want to serve your spouse, just imagine Jesus washing your feet. It's, it's kind of difficult to say something like, well, I'll respect her as soon as she starts respecting me while Jesus is kneeling before you washing your feet. It's kind of preposterous to say something like, well, I'll start serving him again once he starts being a little bit more considerate as Jesus, the Son of God, kneels before you washing your feet. This passage can also apply to the way that we serve other believers. We're, we're called to selflessly serve other believers within the church. In fact, that's the specific application that Jesus makes in John 13. He says, you also ought to wash one another's feet, meaning the disciples washing one another's feet. Uh, one of our values as a church is selfless service. Our values are over here on the little uh, uh, banner. And this certainly applies to our work as a church of serving the community. So one of the ways we embody the value of selfless service is that we want to serve our community. We, we focus on two specific ways that we do that primarily. Uh, first, through foster and adoption care through our partnership with DC 127. Uh, and we also uh, endeavor to feed hungry people through our Bread of Life program that we're actually going to be uh, launching here next month. But first and foremost... Jesus calls us to serve one another. It's not just the church serving the needs of the community, while that's important, but we're also called to serve each other. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says, Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So washing one another's feet through selfless service is basic to being a disciple of Jesus. In fact, later on in this chapter, in, in verse 35 of John 13, Jesus is going to say this. He says, this is how all people will know that you are my disciples, by the way that you love one another. Selflessly serving and loving one another is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. That's how the world is going to be able to tell us apart from those who are not Christians. So what does that look like in practice in the church? There's a ton of application we could give. I could, we could be here all day on this, but I'll just give you a couple of things. Uh, first, be generous in giving your time to other believers. Do you live in your own bubble or is your life opened up to other members of the church? Giving of your time could be as simple as taking time to ask another believer how they're doing and then really listen to what they have to say. It could also mean taking the time to make a meal and bring it to another member of the church who's sick or in need. When people are sick and or in need, followers of Jesus should be the first ones lining up to care for them or to bring them something. Maybe it could mean being generous with your time. Being generous with your time could entail opening up your home and inviting other believers to, 
to come and have a meal with you or just to hang out. And, you know, for some of us, that's harder than others. Some of you are more introverted and you really value your alone time. And yeah, opening up your home may cut into your alone time, but it's an act of selfless love to be hospitable. And Scripture specifically calls us to it. Another way that you can serve other believers is by committing to disciple one another, to disciple other believers. It's one of the best ways that we can love one another is by, in court, is by exhorting and encouraging one another to hold fast to the gospel. We grow in Christ like this and we endure in our faith through the help of other believers. And so one of the ways you can serve other believers is by shepherding each other and help, helping to point one another towards Christ-likeness. So do that by asking one another hard questions and exhorting one another to, to walk in obedience to Jesus. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says this. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It takes effort and it takes sacrifice to do all of this well. We have to actually get to know one another. We have to actually be intentional about getting involved in each other's lives. But it's so important for helping your brothers and sisters in Christ grow in their faith. Lastly, another application, a way we can serve one another is by, you can, by volunteering your time to help make ministry happen in the life of the church. Uh, we can't do what we're doing this morning without Christians selflessly serving with their time. We depend on people who volunteer on Sunday mornings and also in various outreach events that we do. Like on Easter, we're going to be having an Easter egg hunt the day before Easter. We need, we need Christians who will selflessly serve the body so that ministry can happen. And, you know, it's often the most overlooked roles that are mo the most important ones as well. Setting up and tearing down or wiping dirty noses in the nursery isn't glamorous, but it's crucial for us to be able to gather in an orderly fashion without distractions so that our hearts can focus on Jesus. Serving in areas like children's ministry aren't always convenient and yeah, you might miss out on the service that week, but it's an act of selfless love to other believers. And again, we'll just go ahead and apply what we said earlier. If you find yourself thinking, well, I should be doing more important work around the church than children's ministry or setting up. Well, just imagine yourself saying that as Jesus kneels before you washing your feet. And then it sounds kind of silly, right? The kingdom of God is upside down. What gets overlooked here is not overlooked in the kingdom of God. So whether it's doing menial tasks at home to serve your family or overlooking the offense of another believer or wiping noses in the nursery, we're called to wash one another's feet. As we close this morning, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Uh, I just want to kind of bring us back full circle to how we started. So Jesus took the posture of a lowly servant so that we could know and show his love. That's what we see taking place in John chapter 13. That's the meaning behind this great act of love in this passage. By washing the feet of his disciples, Jesus gave us an explanation of the cross and an example to follow. The question I want to leave you with is, are you following that example with your life right now? At home, 
in the church, and even towards your enemies. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and oh, we thank you for the gift of your precious son, Jesus. Jesus, we worship you. You are the eternal word of God. By your word, you uphold the universe. You are deserving of all of our glory and all of our honor and all of our praise. And yet you became man and you dwelt among us. You washed the feet of your disciples and you humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that you could display the limitless heights of the love of God towards sinners. Jesus, in response, we desire to serve and worship you and to serve others. I pray that you would help our hearts grasp the depths of your love this morning so that our hearts would be changed, so that we would repent of selfishness and that we would willingly and gladly pour ourselves out in selfless love towards other people and towards you. God, please do that work in our hearts this morning. And God, I pray that for anyone here who has not been born again, who's not sure that they've been changed from the inside out, that they've been washed from the inside, I pray that right now, oh God, that you would give them spiritual sight, that you'd give them eyes to see, that you would raise them spiritually from the dead, and that they would be given new life in your name, in the powerful name of Jesus. God, I can't change anybody. I can't convince anybody to become a Christian. It's a miracle that must be wrought by the Spirit of God from the inside out. And so, Spirit of God, we are asking you to be merciful towards those that don't know you this morning. We thank you, O God. We worship you. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.